Hey everybody, this is Cameron in the edit. Just giving you a little note here at the top that this episode deals with um, uh, an instance of sexual assault that happens in the game. We talk about it quite a bit. It's actually going to be throughout the rest of the series uh, because it's kind of a critical plot point. Um, nothing particularly graphic or anything like that, but uh, we, we talk about it quite a bit and the game kind of hinges around it. So just letting you know that uh, here at the top. Thanks so much for listening to Mages and Murder Dads. We really appreciate it and uh, let's get right to the show. Welcome back to Mages and Murder Dads episode something. Uh, in the 60s, mid to high 60s, probably. 67? We're getting up to retirement age. I, well, I've retired two years ago. <laughs> two episodes ago, if I could have. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That state pension. You, you took the state pension, but you didn't take the extra points. You didn't want to exactly. like just kind of grind those couple years out for that slightly. You're anticipating dying very soon you need to start mm-hmm. collecting this yeah mm-hmm. episode 77 or so <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but uh uh we're, we're doing that we're still playing disco elysium uh danny what has happened in disco elysium so far so far in the two episodes that we've recorded let me let me give you the lowdown we wake up uh as a middle uh aged um alcoholic detective who has lost his memory on a bender we find out we are in the whirling in rags hotel in a city called martinet we are tasked with attempting to solve a murder we we you know we we are in fact a police officer and we start learning more about that martinet is a neighborhood slash area in a larger city called revachal which, um, you know, we're going to find out more about the political situation there, but there was obviously kind of a, a revolution that, that happened and was quashed by an international force. We, uh, the body has been hanging uh, in a tree um, for the last many days, um, and it, it seems that we have been negligent in our, um, in our duties as a police officer, and we were on a bender the last several days here. Um, our uh, faithful uh, partner uh, of sorts, like partner on this one job from a different uh, precinct, Kim Kitsuragi, uh, kind of helps walk us through a, you know, we were able, after we we're able to get the body down, walk us through a little autopsy. And this is kind of where a big um, kind of divergence happened between my game and Cameron's game. Cameron's game uh, undergoes he 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 goes into like conspiracy land and has these conversations with the corpse and he finds out that uh the corpse blames both communism and a love affair for his death and well <laughs> love did love did him in okay love communism did him in. killed him communism killed him love did him in yes yep uh, whereas um, Danny's character, who even though both of these characters, we, we find out our name is Harry, Danny's character uh, finds a bullet in the head. So a little bit of a divergence there. And we have since went and talked to uh, the union boss, who kind of uh, is the prototypical cliche quest giver that, that who is mm-hmm. withholding information about our lost gun. And I think this uh, is going to be the episode at the very beginning here where we talk to uh, the, I believe, White Pines. Wild Pines. Wild Pines um, corporate kind of negotiator, Joyce Messier, and she is going to fill us in on uh, kind of what the situation is here with the dock workers union and uh and how it may relate to this murder that's kind of right where we are did i miss anything big 
I don't think so. I think that's I think that's about it. Isn't um, it weird how this is this is pretty cogent, right? Yeah, it's almost like a like a full story that uh, has beats, and uh, <laughs> you know, you can you can keep them all in your head at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we haven't gotten you know really into side quest content or anything like that. This game gets a little bit more. Uh, it could be a little bit. Um, you know, widening gyre. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but but we really haven't delved into that. Um, and at the end of the last episode, I talked very briefly about how when I spoke to Joyce Messier, she told me that I had to do a little bit of, I'll scratch your back, you'll, if you'll scratch mine. So she said she would tell me about what's going on in Martinet if I would um, do a little bit of a quest for her. And so I went and found out about the drug trade. Yes. Um, how did that all work out for you? Yeah, I'm curious as how it worked out for you. I think, I, I wonder how similar or different it is. So the way this is set up is after you talk to Joyce, and I, I knew I needed to kind of at least get enough of an investigation going to to allow her to like let us talk seriously. And I think the reason why she the kind of manufactured reason why is because I don't have my badge. I'm, I'm missing my badge and my gun. So she was like, "Oh, I don't trust you. You need to do some police stuff for me to really believe you're police." So the way it worked for me is I talked to some of the lorry drivers and there are four that I talked to. Mm-hmm. Um I'm going to I don't know their names specifically. But I will. So there's the racist lorry driver. I know his name. That's mm-hmm. one. Two is cool poet lorry driver. Mm-hmm. Three is, uh, I guess, spaced out nostalgic lorry driver. Yeah, uh, yeah it's like Spanish Civil War. Yes, lorry driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, or May, May of '68 in fake Spain, lorry driver. Yes. But yeah, she she's like on a having like a flashback basically when yeah. you're talking to her. Uh, she's almost, uh, and the way she talks about it, it's almost like a very uh, Vonnegut unstuck in time, time moment for mm-hmm. her. Yeah. And then finally, um, and this is going to be kind of like the, the central hub, uh, this fellow's name was uh, C. Ling, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And C. Ling has like a New Yorker accent, I mm-hmm. think. Like a Brooklyn sure. accent or something. I don't. Yeah, sure, sure. You're 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 a little lost here too. I think. I I mean I I, I don't I don't know what what that accent's supposed to be. You know, a lot of these uh, can be mapped onto real world accents. You mm-hmm. know, like the um, uh, gosh, uh, the the nostalgic glory driver. Yeah, uh, Mesk is what Mesk. The, is mm-hmm. what they're called, right? And it's kind of like an analog to Spain. It seems like it and seems like there's de- there's always these little cognates of like Mesk, and you're like, oh, that's one letter, off, two a couple letters off from like Basque, I guess. Yeah. Like there's yeah. all, it's always like the, like one of those, and you'll see those in, in other like national or racial terms pop mm-hmm. up through the game. But uh, but but yeah, I can't. I don't know what this what the analog for this real world accent is, other than like. Someone who learned to talk like a New Yorker from watching TV mm. is like kind of the vibe I get, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Know. So, but you don't know that Sealing is a lorry driver from your first interaction with them. Sealing is uh, selling like goods out of boxes. Mm-hmm. And when you examine the boxes, they're like, 
I, I imagine like the the equivalent in our uh, would be like if they had USAID stamped on the side and it was like not for resale. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. like the, like a humanitarian aid only, and it was like to the people of blank and mm-hmm. the and these like uh the the insert names of the locations you know that they're being sent to i've picked up throughout the rest of the playthrough is these are these are some of the same places that the mercenary group ends up operating in mm. mm-hmm. so they, these are you know perhaps quote-unquote war-torn nations um and there are b- various goods like, um, you know, uh, clothing and also some electronics in them. And when you're talking to uh, to Sealing, you can point out, hey, th- th- that's weird. And Sealing kind of says, hey, I, uh, who, am, who am I to question, like, where my, you know, sources are getting this stuff? But I'm, I'm just a wholesome reseller. It's only when I ended up talking to the racist lorry driver... And I, you know, I asked the racist lorry driver about any drug trafficking. He immediately, being a racist, accuses C. Ling of it mm-hmm. and like and like explicitly couches his accusation in, oh, this foreigner br- bringing in these uh, the, these uh, toxic goods to, to harm us. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, that, that's that's very much the narrative. Yep. Is that the, so? I'm um, we're we're right there with one another in terms of how this gets cracked. Yep. Um, yeah, this is the exact up up until this point. This is exactly how it worked out for me. Mm-hmm. So I went back to see Ling and I basically said, hey, the racist lorry driver said that you are, in fact, a lorry driver. And I'm going to and like basically he insinuated that you are selling the goods that you were tasked with um, with uh, transporting. And uh, Sealing has a, has a great line about like, look, um, I, I like I may be a lorry driver now, but spiritually, I am a I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a, I'm a I'm a businessman, and, and I want to sell this stuff. Um, but anyway, I'm able to like just talk to Sealing, and he and he's like, hey, you know, I, everybody's afraid to talk about it, but people talk about the lady driver. People talk about this person being involved in some really scary stuff. And, you know, you didn't hear it from me, but we're pretty sure that it was the uh, lady driver that um, that was was involved in this drug running. And I asked, well, was it the nostalgic lorry driver? And he was like, I don't know, maybe. And I think from here, there are basically two directions you can go. You can go back to the racist lorry driver. Or you can go to the poet. Who did you go to? Oh, that's interesting. I went to the poet. You went to the poet. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, I, I ended up going to the poet because he was the one who talked to me the most, frankly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he had, it seemed like he had the most to say. I went to the racist lorry driver first. And when I talked to the racist lorry driver, there was an opportunity for me to try to strong arm him and like mm. bl- and bluff and insinuate that I was a member of... I think it's called the Padre Madre. <laughs> I, I can't remember. Like there, I, 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 I remember reading it and was like, that's very strange. But I think it also might be the result of a failed check where I just said something ridiculous. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Yeah. So I don't, there is like a drug cartel, but I don't think it's called that. Is Madre it in down. it? Maybe. You Tell your story and I'll look this up. Yeah. So... Like I said, I think that this is the thing about the game. Sometimes, like, you'll just fail checks and, like, get things wrong. So, like, if I fail an encyclopedia check. But anyway, I uh, Kim and I attempt 
Kim bluffs and kind of insinuates that we may be working for the cartel that is is working with these drugs and that we're trying to find the information out about, you know, the destination or where these drugs ended up and that the racist lorry driver will be in danger by not aiding us. And I fail the the strong arm bluff because basically I tell him, hey, you know, how about we step outside? And he just laughs at me. He's like, we're standing outside. What are you talking, what are you talking about? And I lose a morale. Hmm. That's what happens. That's what happens to me. But it's weird because I don't think that Sealing mentioned the cartel. There's, there seems like a little disconnect in the, in like what knowledge my character is supposed to know versus not. Um, because I don't think I've been explicitly told about this cartel, but I kind of ambiently knew about it. So where are you on this cartel? Have you like been told anything about it? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to like look up the name of it and everyone just says the word cartel, but it does have a name. I just Mm -hmm. didn't write it down, but, um, and I do believe the name is like Spanish or, or Spanish adjacent. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, in the same way that like, uh, the mesk, you know, yes, uh, Spain, pseudo Spaniard stuff, right? This is mm-hmm. like the uh, you know a half dreamed version of a real world cartel, which is kind of like the whole thing. I think when we in this game, we can kind of talk about what's gained and lost with all of these like pseudo real world these things. analogs. But, yeah, these analogs. Um, but uh, yeah, so what happens to me is I like uh, I think Kim might have said something about the cartel. Um, I don't think I knew, I'm trying to think, cause I, I did this a couple episodes back. The way this ended up happening for me is I just went back to the poet and I said, Hey, um, I know something's up here. I know about this, this woman, what's up. And the game basically says, look, you can lean on this guy really hard or you can try to find another way. And I just said, I'm just going to lean on this dude. You know, I'm, I'm playing super cop here. Like. This is what I don't care about this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just leaned on him as hard as humanly possible. And I found out both, you know, the confirmation that there's this uh, woman lorry driver who's running around. And then eventually I leaned on him hard enough that he's like, OK, I have the key to her lorry. Here it is. Mm. Uh, and then when I, when I got into that lorry. That so truck, I, just to interject, I had mm-hmm. to end up doing that, too, because the bluff failed. So basically gotcha. you get gotcha. the one shot with the racist lorry driver and then you're only out is the. uh is poet fellow so yeah gotcha and well i kind of wonder too about i kind of wish one of us had been able to do it because i wonder like this guy has the key so you know what i mean Mm. i I don't i don't think that changes i don't think the racist lorry driver just because we learned that the reason he has the key the the poet is because i had a good relationship and he like you know was friends with her and all this kind of stuff so Um, the information he gives about her is that she's been kind of in a dark place Mm -hmm. um mentally and that she's she's been struggling we know that uh her hair color recently changed maybe it used to be blue and is now violet or vice versa um and i don't know we don't know too much else like a gruff persona i believe he said Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah, so I don't know where the key... I mean, that's all to say, I don't know if it's like, oh, you get the bluff with the racist lorry driver, and then like canonically he had the key. Um, I don't really know. I don't understand how that would work. But mm-hmm. uh, all to say, I, end up, I lean on the guy, I get the key, I go and open it, um, and this is where... I think I... This is, is, did we talk about this at the end of the episode? Uh, about we did. The, uh, 
Okay. Gotcha. Well, you, we well, I think you mentioned there. There are like a couple things you can find. There's the pinup mm-hmm. girls, the photos of the of mm-hmm. like uh, models in mm-hmm. the in the cabin. There's the radio with all of the stations, and you did mention that. Yeah. Um, uh, the implication being, oh, that this is some sophisticated operation. Yes, and so that I think is actually where I got the most information about cartels was talking about that mentioning that and then talking with kim having like a short conversation with him about it Mm -hmm. um the and then the pedal the pedal and the toolbox i don't think i noticed the toolbox okay so there was a toolbox in there and if you opened it up there was a little there was some papers and one of the papers had just a quick note about fal or like faln transmissions and when I read that, my electrochemistry was like, ooh, it sounds nasty. But that's all. I don't know anything like intellectually about it. I just know. Gotcha. Yeah. And I it don't... doesn't, but it doesn't sound like Kim mentioned, ah, oh, that's not a transmission I know of. Is he like listed a couple of, um, of you know, like the, the equivalents of AM and FM, right? Uh, yeah. Transmissions. But yeah. And yeah. And she's on like some CB radio shit mm-hmm. where she has like hundreds of stations where she can check out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, that all comes down to we know there's a drug trade, and we can tell Joyce Messier yeah, about we, it. We 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 figure out, yeah, we figure out that it exists, um, and that is sufficient. Kind of, I guess that's sufficient, basically, for us to say, okay, we'll open an investigation up on it. And I guess that's enough for Joyce Messier. Like like all all it, all it took was us saying, okay, we'll look into it. We now know yep. something to look into. Yep. And then the lore dump can happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the situation we have is Joyce Messier was sent here as a negotiator. She, uh, the the people that she represents at Wild Pines, lost faith in her because she flubbed something, more or less. And as a result, they sent mercenaries here to Martinet, they sent uh, three mercenaries. So, this is where it kind of gets interesting. The name of this mercenary group was, I think, Colonel, right? Mm-hmm. It was a K, but and 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 they immediately say, "Oh, it used to be known as like uh, a different name." And I've already oh, yes, yes, I think yes. so. Mm-hmm. I think I, I read that as like Kernel, but I Kernel, or, yes. or Krenel, I Krenel. Think. There we go. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, oh, but it used to be like downspout or downpour, or downfall, mm-hmm. or something like that. So we've already got like a Blackwater Z academi. Like that. This is what is being evoked is yeah. private military contractors that change their name every couple of years, like after bad PR and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are like it is it it fits it to a T. It talks about how this these are groups that operate internationally in places with uh, very limited, um, you know, accountabilities for what these organizations do and that uh, they're hyper violent. And it really was a it was a is a huge step in escalation to send a group like this to Revachal to Martinet. Mm-hmm. Um, missing anything so far? Nope. Yeah. So they, they all got, wear ceramic armor. Yeah. And they wear they they wear this super high tech um stuff and they also we were told about their kind of ordinance. They have 
semi-automatic weapons, which is, is going to be contrasted with the kind of weapons that you would find in Martinet, which are basically like muzzle loaders that you have to, you know, reload every one or two shots. Mm -hmm. Um, So incredibly dangerous. Uh, Kim says, hey, you know, well, they have thousands of dock workers. It would be like a thousand to one. And Joyce Messier would be like, these people are so well armed that it would still be this tremendous bloodbath um, if there was a conflict. Yeah, she says, and you might not have gotten this. It's actually interesting because it came from my encyclopedia knowledge, I think. Mm. She says, have you ever seen a wasp attack a beehive? She did say that, but I didn't have like any insight. What was your insight? Yeah, I think it was encyclopedia that tells me, uh, you know, it like gives a specific species name for the world. And basically it says that, you know, the wasp goes in and it kills the whole hive. They, Mm. They all attack it and it still defeats the whole hive. Mm. Um, and so the idea is that you know these people they they don't the the weapons that they have and the capability that they have numbers are not sufficient mm-hmm. you know? and and we know from the or at least I know from the uh, autopsy that banging on that ceramic armor right like it, it can take a huge amount of trauma um you you can't do anything to it um you know without equivalent weaponry and so She's basically saying, you know, even if everyone in this part of the city attacked these people, they could just take it and then, you know, gun them all down. Yeah, this is so we're really setting up the stakes here of what's going to happen. And we're basically told that as far as the Wild Pines corporate intelligence has prepared Joyce Messier, the following happened. One of these mercenaries, the one who died whose name is a nickname, war name, nom, nom de guerre, mm-hmm. uh, Lely. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, got drunk one night or, or maybe high. He sexually assaulted um, a, a woman who, like, I, either local or I think it was even implied, like, at the Whirling and Rags. It was because she mentioned, like, karaoke night or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And basically, this uh, group of kind of armed union members who are who are um, kind of cast as like more ideologically uh, extreme, like kind of they are the they 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 are kind of the fill the role of the local the RCM here here in Martinet, and that they uh, basically had a vig- some they just enacted vigilante justice and and like hung this fellow. Um, after he did this. Yep. And the remaining two mercenaries have, have in her words, gone to ground. They may ha- still be having a role in, like, agitating the scabs. But they are conducting their own investigation parallel to us. And in a few days' time, she doesn't give an exact day, in a few days' time, they are going to basically hold their own tribunal extrajudicially or supra-judicially, however you want to call it. And they're going to they're going to like kill the people they believe are responsible. And Joyce basically tells us this is the situation. If you can't pin this on somebody compelling in the next few days, it's going to be a bloodbath. It's gonna be it's gonna be awful because they're just going to kill everybody they suspect. And if they do that, then the union is going to respond in full force. And and then the worst case scenario happens. The murderer, the the hornet in the in the in the hive situation mm-hmm. may well happen. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that and then there and and then that becomes an event that is 
large enough in magnitude that it actually begins to like affect the political stability of Revachol. Um, because the union is kind of, and, and this is, uh, I got this information from probably some different things. The union is one of these, along with the RCM are these vestigial elements of the former communist government that just never got completely destroyed. And there is this like strange balance or equilibrium that these like elements have continued to survive after kind of the the liberal powers, international powers that be has have imposed like a market economy on this place. But that, you know, there are still these entities that hold power. And if this kind of magnitude of an event happens, you know, all of Revachol will be affected. Yeah. And there's an implicit one gets the sense that that Wild Pines' decision to bring these mercenaries in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it comes from... It, it was a decision made in panic, it seems like, yes. right? Like, the, to in order to kind of hedge on these negotiations. And it's backfired heavily, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. because it's created this situation. But also you get the sense that, and we're going to see this a lot through the rest of the game, that it's kind of history coming to bear a little bit. Because Wild Pines is, in, in the way that the Union is this kind of like, you know, remainder from uh, the communist government and the RCM is a remainder of like the uh, revolutionary, the, the anti-revolutionary forces basically, right? You know, they're, they're a peacekeeping militia. The um, Wild Pines is, is a remainder of the suzerain. The, yes. The king that existed. Uh, beforehand because the monarchy transmogrified in like it just kind of adapted and transmogrified into corporatism yes because yes exactly because all of its it basically privatized all of its arms into uh state state run monopolies Mm -hmm. Uh, and wild pines is one of those monopolies it was a monopoly on trade um and functionally uh, like as you're reading this or as i'm reading this it's it's the dutch east india company i mean it's Mm. the exact story of of how that works um and so you know the suzerain transfers over a lot of its state making power into this corporate sector and so when and the suzerain is destroyed but all of that power is still stuck around so what we're getting kind of in the background of this conversation is that we're seeing all of the stages or, you know, stages is maybe not correct, all of these different individual power structures in the history of Martinet uh, running into one another, right? And they are literally running into one another in armed conflict. And so in some ways, this is, you know, the the communist revolution happening again, or, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of uh, coming again, specter-like, and and running into the current liberal liberal order, which is, you know, a replication of something that was happening under the suzerain. Um, and so you, you can tell, so, you know, as you're saying, it's a big problem, but it's a big problem that seems to have been baking a long time. Yes. Yes. And I, we, it's wild that I mentioned that, uh, Joyce was a negotiator when I didn't say, I didn't even lead what the conflict is that required a negotiator to come in. Mm. Right. Which is the union's big demand, which the union's big demand is every worker a board member. Yeah. Right, so and they basically them out really bad. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it because basically it is it is saying we want to completely, uh, you know, liquefy the way that the board structure works, and we want to make it completely horizontal. Um, 
which is th- that is the this is this comes this is basically like a little microcosm of like the where the limitations of a union begins because the the existence of a union is <laughs> like once you make a demand like that there is no mutual um there is no mutual interest right this is like this is the complete uh, it's complete antagonism now between like the people that have the power in the company and and the union's demand yeah Um, and her opinion on that is actually interesting too because you can ask her about it or maybe i got some additional dialogue but she says you know uh, she says that she personally just thought that was rhetoric right you know Mm -hmm. it's not it's not a real demand right it is is a rhetorical form to get what they want but the the rest of the people or the actual board itself really freaked out about it um you know because they took it as you're saying is this like true antagonism we've talked to the head of the union there there is no you know every person a board member over there right like that's not that's not real um it is just pure rhetoric right as far as we know as far as we can see um and we and we know as we find out later in this episode there's a very hierarchical relationship between uh the union leader and then the you know the hardy boys the people who are kind of the enforcers for the union yeah and so it's hyper hierarchized so so you know messier i think is is in the right in the sense of she has read the situation correctly but the corporate structure being so far away right being so disconnected from the the reality on the ground has no idea that this is just rhetoric. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if it's going to play out in the game. I can't remember whether or not there are true believers who like actually bought the... Because like every every worker, a board member, is a... That is the extreme thing you know you never get in order to get other concessions, right? Yes. That is its yeah. rhetorical utility. And... I think your read is perfect in that Joyce is a Joyce is a, pra- a pragmatist. She's a corporatist pragmatist, but she's a pragmatist, and she sees the other side saying this. She knows the structure, the lay of the land, much more than the people who are isolated in the corporate towers, and she and she knows Claire, uh, and so uh, Everett, right? Mm-hmm. And she knows. Okay, this is purely a this is purely like an anchoring point. We negotiate and we find something else. It's just something. I don't remember whether or not there are true believers within the union that like where the rhetoric takes on a life of its own, and it and it like and like Claire loses control uh, over that. But I, I, yeah, I, we. I mean, we don't really know. That's that's kind of a weird thing about this. I mean, obviously, we got more game to play, and mm-hmm. uh, like you, I can't remember it ever coming up really. But you know, the closest we get to um, uh, a true believer is someone like, uh, or actually, to, to back it up, the closest thing that we get to talk to a worker, <laughs> just like a regular, you know, regular human being, is someone like Kami Manana, right? Yeah, who still has a pretty, you know, he seems to be like honest with you right but he's a functionally a spy right like yeah he he is like a mid-level manager of like you know ideological operation here so it's kind of hard to know one way or the other is he really a true believer or is we, he just kind of you're right everyone we meet is in the union is already has already compromised in some way and they admit it um I guess Call measure me head. Measure yeah. head's like a true believer. No, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Measure head's a true believer, but he. But when you push about like, you know, Claire, 
uh, hey, mm-hmm. Claire's a white dude. What's what's going on? How do how do you square that? Measurehead is like this is a compromise because like communism was this horrific mistake. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like every everyone's already you know there's been some level of like acceptance. Um, and and you know last episode we talked about there's kind of this pessimistic streak in the way that this uh, game functions. And I do think that like it behooves us moving forward when we talk to characters and we talk about what their stance is on issues. We should try to discern is this person, is this person a zealot and a true believer and, and are they compromising or not? And yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I think you're right. And what I think you were both noting by kind of running through these characters is that everyone is kind of a real politics cynic. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we talked a little bit last time, but but this is kind of the the um, the association with like, you know, the quote unquote dirtbag left. Right. Or like Internet leftists. Right. Is that there's a kind of universal cynicism that runs through it. And it's really hard to I, I don't want to paint this game with that brush entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you cast your voice actors out of that pool of people and you make, uh, you know, uh, you know, pretty obvious connections with them, um, you're making choices about how you're rhetorically positioning your game kind of outside of it. And it's, it's really hard to see like, if, you know, like what a, a, a good example of ideology that you should be embracing is in this world. And maybe mm-hmm. the answer is like, ha ha ha, there isn't one. Um, but I, I, I want to think. And maybe I'm wrong, right? We'll, we'll get through it. But mm-hmm. I want to think that Disco Elysium is has something to say more than like a random episode of South Park. But mm. I think as per the conversation that we're having about, you know, how ideology is working in this game or how people think about their world in this game, it's pretty close to like the ideology, you know, the conceptual core of an episode of South Park. Mm-hmm. Where at the center of everything is uh, is cynicism. Is cynicism, and if you believe anything, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. The coolest thing you can do is not believe anything. It's kind of it's, it's mm-hmm. the, there. There seems to be like that is the natural like uh, conclusion of these premises. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so anyway, just to get back, so that was the negotiation, and that's and this kind of explains. I think that the the further and further isolation of the corporate structure away from like the ground of where work happens and where demands are made is like an explanation of this. And I think that like you can probably there's de- there's definitely there's definitely like a dialectical explanation for for how this circumstance occurs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so anyway. We get that information and we ask, uh, I was able to tell you a little bit about Lely. He is, we are told about his background from Joyce Messier. She calls him, uh, I think she calls him Occidental and maybe uses another term to describe him. Yeah, I know where he's from. I don't know if I got it from this conversation. I know I I know that I did not get it from this conversation. But, oh, but interesting. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's a white dude. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, but she was unable to give me the exact like where he was from and it was specifically because one of his war injuries like uh i guess damaged his jaw in a way that changed his accent um Mm -hmm. and i remember my electrochemistry and my shivers and my physical instrument all like had a lot of like insight into the idea of a war injury um determining the way you speak 
Whereas mm. normally your heritage or your ancestry or your your physical where you were raised in a physical place would would like determine where you where you how you spoke and like identify you, and basically all of those things, uh, those like bodily conceptions that I have, um, uh, they they were like very interested and interrogated for a little bit the idea of war itself of physical struggle and domination, like supplanting that supplanting your origin yeah he he's got i that that wound becomes kind of a big symbol i think for a lot of the ideas that are are trying to be that that kind of get worked out in this game through him but i i don't have that much to say about it right now but i i will for something later on this episode gotcha so Basically, these are the things we're kind of tasked. We know that there are two other mercenaries. We know that we need to we need to like police the hell out of this, you know, investigate the hell out of this situation because we got to find out uh, who actually uh, who actually was guilty of the murder. And uh, otherwise, the the mercenaries are going to are going to cause a lot of a lot of harm. So that's more or less my conversation with Joyce. I asked her for money. I do not have enough volition. This is going to become important uh, in a little <laughs> bit. I do not have enough volition to act physically do it. I, I do the check and I just say, <laughs> and she's like, what? Now, have you seen, have you gotten the quest get a reality lowdown? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> And it might be because you know things with your encyclopedia, but at some point or another, I got this uh, like idea where I was like, how do things really work like in the real world, you know? And, um, oh, it was on the radio, the police radio. Huh. I, I told Kim, hey, I've, I've lost my memory. This is wild. And Kim's like, you should call the doctor. Uh, at, at the police station. So I called the doctor and the doctor's like, you're just an alcoholic. Um, that's, mm -hmm. that's what the problem is. And I'm like, no, but I've lost my memory. I don't know. I don't remember how things work. And somebody at some point says, you should just talk to a rich person. They'll tell you, they'll, they'll sort it out for you. They'll like tell you what the deal is. Yeah. So I'm able to like have a special conversation with Joyce where despite the fact that I'm unable to like ask her for money, I am able to ask her like, how does the world work? And I get some, like, interesting... Uh, there's, like, a kindred spirit in some way between Joyce and I because we both... I think we're both at the age where, we're, like, we saw disco happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we caught disco, but we were born, in her words, a thousandth of a second too late for the big time. And I asked what the big time was, and she was like, the revolution. So we weren't there when kind of the world we're living in was created. We, we, yeah. we were born right after that. Um, and there are a couple of other checks in that conversation that require conceptualization or something like that, where I basically like ask this rich person the big questions about like why the world works the way it does. And I am unfortunately not smart enough to like phrase the questions. <laughs> That's a real, so, well, I mean, I guess what's interesting here, right, is we are uh, getting a little bit, you know, in this Oh, I, sorry. I guess the, the question I have for you is that do you get replacement answers from your body? Meaning, like, are you trying to ask 
you know, how does the world work? And you can't formulate the question, but then, you know, your shivers gives you an answer or your, you know, whatever, your physique not, gives you an answer. Not in this situation, because it's specifically to get to the point I've got white checks mm -hmm. in uh, intellectual things. And it might be very specific to this particular kind of inquiry, right? Because mm -hmm. this is, well, I mean, what it sounds like is this is basically, I want someone to explain how, like, the liberal world order works. Yeah. Right. And I, and it's just in this particular conversation, it does not seem, I think that there was a, you know, there were two checks actually to kind of get there. There is an intellect check and a uh, psyche check. And I'm, those are just the two things I don't have. Right. And it, so it, there are some things where you don't get to experience content if you, if you're playing a certain character. And I'm, and I'm sure that there are going to be some checks that like you're probably faced with that you just don't have the raw strength to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, I, yeah. The only, the reason I'm asking that, right. Is that mm -hmm. it seems like this game is pretty good about giving whatever your specialization is. It gives you some kind of answer, right. Or it gives you some kind of like resolution, um, I mean, functionally, what you're describing is the same thing that happens if you, like, don't have high enough intelligence in Planescape Torment, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's disappointing to me, I guess, is what I'm saying, that um, there are moments here where this game seems to be so uh, interested in rethinking some of these baseline formulas, right? And baseline ways of interacting with the world that are inherited from D&D, &D, where you are just running into a brick wall the way that you would in any of those other games, yeah um and that's that's unfortunate I, you know i i think that this is a place where like you know your body can tell you how the the, the world really works mm -hmm. um you know based on the failure um i will say at least so the structurally it's not a revolution it's not it's it, it hasn't changed anything but i do think that it is much more forgiving because these are white checks if i wanted to retry one i could put on a different outfit by the end of the game right mm -hmm. and put one point in there and give it another shot also i could smoke i don't know if you've smoked but smoke just smoking just increases your intellect by one and like resets <laughs> all intellect based white checks uh no i have not it damages your health too but you know yeah i don't uh, i don't believe in it Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, you're... I'm a straight edge cop, mm -hmm. racist nationalist. <laughs> yeah, that's the character. Mm -hmm. You're very so very much in the same way that like the lorry driver says, "Hey, you know these drugs? They're just mm -hmm. they're just here to like sabotage us from yeah. you know foreigners sending them to to this place." Yes. Mm -hmm. The well, this is the last thing that I did before ending the day. Whoa. Okay. So this is another. So remember how you had to spend like forever dealing with Measurehead? Correct. I do this and it's like five. Oh. Yeah. So, and I'm also in like a pickle <laughs> because, and, and let me, I'll, I'll kind of, this is not Danny's big problem level. I didn't have to mm -hmm. replay the game or anything, but <laughs> it was like, it was an issue that I had in the playthrough. Um, my clock was so less advanced than yours at this point that I had to try to like figure out how to advance, how to like advance the day. Cause the last thing I have on my little quest that I'm supposed to debrief with Kim and I can do that on the balcony after eight, right? Yes. Um, well, it's not even eight yet. I've still got a couple hours left before that. There's another problem. 
You can't initiate that conversation until you pay your bill. Oh yeah, you need some money. I need money. So I can't even eat. So I, I like do a couple other things and I can tell you a little bit about them, but I do a couple other things and I get the clock to eight and I'm like, yes, it's now eight. We can debrief with Kim. Well, I can't because I haven't paid the bill. I've asked Claire for the novelty check. The novelty check does not cover everything. It's like 50 or something. It's, I think, 20. It's Oh, it's 20. It's not. It's, so I took that and the five from him. Wow. But I've still only got 30 and change. And don't you need like 100 or something? 130. That's a lot. I can't talk to Joyce Messier. She, 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 I'm unable to physically ask. I asked the mega rich light bending guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the mega rich light bending guy only gave me one. Yeah. Because he said the real, the real money is the hard work along the way. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a, I'm in a bit of a pickle and it turns out what has to happen is that the clock needs to get all the way to 10. And then when the clock gets to 10 and you don't have the money, Kim will uh, basically tell you, hey, it's it's getting late. And I, and I say, well, I don't have the money to uh, to give, you know, Gart. 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 <laughs> um, and Kim's like, hey, well, let's, you know, let's see if we can work something out. So I go to Gert and I'm like, hey, I don't have the money. If I tried to go to Gert before this time, like 10 p.m., I would just have, hey, what's my bill? And that was the only thing I could ask. I cannot believe that you can't threaten to just whip this dude's ass. It's wild. On his job. Yeah, no, I could not. The the only option was, hey, what's my bill? And then after that, I could ask that question again or back out to the the next uh, higher sub-menu of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So a little disappointing. Yeah. Um. It is wild when you first are told about the bill, like, you know, on at the beginning of day one, you can say you're under, you can react with, you're under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't do that because I'm not playing like a cop cop. Mm-hmm. Um, so in any case, have to wait till 10, go to Gert, Gart. He, uh, I'm like, hey, could we work something out? And if he, and he says, well, if you mean, if you mean by work something out, you mean, you give me the, the exact amount of money I've asked, then sure. And I say, well, I've still got the key. And he's like, I've changed the lock, buddy. Damn. So I, and, and I literally go up and check. I cannot get into the room anymore. It's, it's like, it's not a thing. Um, and I say, I don't have money, but I promise I can give you the money tomorrow. And he says, Un- no, absolutely not. I do, I do not trust you. And Kim's like, hey, let's go out to the car. Maybe, maybe I can help you out. So I go back out to the car and Kim's like, hey, you know, I, I confiscated these and they are basically hub hubcap spinners. They're really fancy hubcaps. Mm-hmm. And there it's kind of touching because there's like Kim is a I guess a uh, he's a he's a car aficionado. Right. Yes. Which, yeah. is, which is kind of established in some previous conversations about how this is the sports model. He he loves it. It's a big part of his identity. Is like is like enjoying these cars. Mm-hmm. He's got and a racing are... jacket on. That's why he's so cool looking. Got that like bomber jacket. Oh, little interjection. My thought cabinet. I've been putting. I've been not even leveling things up. Every time I have a thought cabinet thing, I will use a level to unlock a new slot to do it. Right? Okay. I've got aces low. Mm. 
so I had the aces low with Kim and I developed that. And now I have plus two empathy with Kim and plus one esprit de corps. And, uh, you know, I think it finally realizes like, oh my gosh, this whole outfit is like an old uh, revolutionary air force outfit. Mm. So I asked him about it and he did tell me, I mean, revolutionary, no. He's very, he's very, he's very, he's like, no, I'm not associated with that. But as a child, I grew up always wanting to be in the Air Force. And, uh, you know, it, it sucked because by the time I came of age, the Air Force no longer existed. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that was my little moment with Kim. But anyway, so we shared this moment where I, I felt bad about taking these hubcaps. Um, but I did anyway, because I, I just have no money. Um, so I had to go pawn them. Uh, I had to go to the pawn shop um, and sell them to this weird pawn shop guy who I didn't interact with fully because I think we're going to interact with him more later. Um, and I had to sell them for 200 Kim gave me the 130 out of it. And, uh, and I had to use that in order to, uh, in order to rest. So you, you on day one, mm-hmm. you did not talk to claire again after talking to joyce messier no have you talked to uh claire on day two no oh interesting why so i did go back to claire um you know in the interim where i was trying to kill time to get to 10 o'clock mm-hmm. and it was it's an interesting conversation I know that you at least had some of the conversation because he tasked you with like delivering those, uh, getting people to sign a letter, right? Yes. Yeah. He gives you that kind of no matter what after you open that door for him. Yes. So I so I did the door and I, I misremembered. I did knock on it, but it didn't complete the quest. I did have to go in to like Got be it. able to do the next step of the quest, which, hmm. yeah, it was the guy with the, the racist collection. Yep. So I went back to Claire to kill time. And I told him about that. But because I had had the conversation with Joyce Messier, there was a new like dialogue tree that had opened up. And I think it's quite interesting because he talks about like the crime and the Hardy Boys. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we did have a conversation about the Hardy Boys because he, I basically negotiated with him about um, the Hardy Boys' cooperation. Yes. So you didn't mention that, but did you notice how he was basically throwing them under the bus? Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. He was like, he was like, yeah, you know, they must have got hot headed and they must have uh, done all this stuff. It was, it was real, real bad. Yeah. The implication. I mean, this is what everyone kind of says, right? Is that the Hardy Boys are they're union members and they're obviously like union bruisers, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're kind of this police arm of the union. Um. But they are also autonomous. And like, so if someone's there to take a hit for the union, that's their job is to, Mm -hmm. you know, to do time or to go get in a fight or whatever for the union. Um, And that's actually happening in quite a few different ways, um, Mm -hmm. as we'll learn shortly. But but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He he is saying, oh, yeah, it seems like there's a problem. You should go see what they have to say about it. Mm -hmm. And I have a dialogue option with him to be like, so you're saying they killed him? And he was like, yeah, it's pretty obvious. You know, he, he never says anything explicitly. It's always like, you know, the, the facts all point to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I always have this, uh, now I have this dialogue option to be like, but I, there was a bullet in the corpse. Right? Oh. Ooh. 
And I, I say that. He, yeah, so I say this, and nothing happens there because, um, basically because the... He just says, oh, well, you know, you're, you're even further ahead of it than I am. But it feels like there might be something there later. So I just wanted to like, hmm. put a pin in that. Interesting. Yeah. So did, did you do any... We've covered all the stuff that you've done on day mm-hmm. one. Yeah, I went to bed. Mm-hmm. You went to bed. Uh, oh, well, you debrief with Kim, right? I did debrief with Kim. But, I mean, you know, we just... It's basically what we've talked about. I don't think I yeah. learned anything new there. He really it, is just being like, yeah, it took you four hours to do this. So please remember <laughs> everything that you did. It's vitally important that you remember the plot of the game. Yes. Yeah. It really is just a... Uh, like a catch up on the main quest, which is this investigation. Yep. Um, no real new information there. So... Uh, how, how, how did you sleep? Um, poorly. I, um, I, I'm looking at my notes here, right? So I couldn't go to sleep originally. Mm-hmm. And then I have a dream of myself hanging in the tree. So With Harry- disco lights scintillating off of you. And yeah. Casting. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Harry Dubois. Yeah. In kind of, it's been, it's the lights from the whirling and rags uh, mm-hmm. that are kind of going around. And uh, and it tells me all kinds of stuff, right? This is something that's interesting to me that I really just kind of glossed over, didn't pick up nearly as heavily in uh, in my first playthrough of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but this game, every time you are like talking to yourself, it is constantly bringing up your ex-wife. Yes, uh, 100%. It happens, in, it happens in the intro, it happens here. And like that's not something that's showing up in my playthrough in the sense of like I'm not bringing that up when there are those kind of dialogue options mm-hmm. that, that appear. I'm not going down those roads. Because you're so, being very professional. I'm being very professional. And like this is not about, you know, in the way that I'm role-playing the character, this is not about the emotions of the character, right? Like the, the character is embodying the ideologies that, mm-hmm. that he has, right? So he's a racist and a nationalist. But uh, it's not like about him, right? And mm. uh, you know, so I'm really trying to avoid that kind of kind of thing, right? It's a CSI episode, yeah. Um, so um, yeah, so so asking me about my wife, um, and I I have to be like, look, I'm trying to hold it together to solve this case, yeah. And then it kind of ends. I mean, my body, my lizard brain, and my limbic system have some opinions about like how much it's going to suck to wake up. Um, mm. but, uh, yeah, I, I have a feeling I don't go as like far down the rabbit hole with this dream as you theoretically could. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause so you've got the professional, I am not delving into personal. Mm-hmm. I am delving into the personal, but there, so there are two types of ways. One is like really wallowing in it and fully embracing the emotions. Mm-hmm. And that cop type is the apologetic cop, which I'm not. Right. Mm-hmm. I, by the way, still not. I blew, completely blew it by saying that I didn't want to think of myself as a particular copa type. Oh, uh, still, that's never come up again. It's really unfortunate. Oh, no. yeah. yeah, that's sad. Uh, I am the rock star cop, and I, you know, excess and basically, I am running from my emotions through this like uh, illu- illusions of grandeur, mm-hmm. right? So, but I did have to. When pressed, I was like, she left me. And then the the my my own corpse hanging in the tree was like you're right she did that happened you know so that was sad mm-hmm. have you so did you find your ledger Mm-mm. so you nope. haven't gone through the the um the dumpster right nope I haven't had a reason to hadn't had a reason to 
So I found my ledger, which is why I was able to like get the form, the autopsy form, and I didn't have to borrow one from Kim. Mm-hmm. You can look at a whole bunch of different stuff in there. It's pretty interesting. You can see all of your old cases. Um, and when you're picking up, it's like it's like a big clipboard, but like one of those box clipboards where you could store something in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I pried open the compartment and there was uh, some ticket stubs in there. To like a matinee, and there was there is a letter. Uh, it is very important that you save your progress before reading the letter. Um, especially you, the one thing you don't want to do is like play forty five minutes without saving, and then read the letter, <laughs> and then take a, such a severe mor- morale hit <laughs> that you the game ends. No, it's not a morale hit. It is an automatic end. Oh wow! Oh, I it think just, I did. I think I do know this. So, t- t- tell me about it. Yeah, it is a it is a letter from what is obviously your ex, and it it's, it, it it appears to be basically a breakup letter. Uh, and your ex references your your very deep soul, and then like there is there comes a page where it's dot dot dot, and you get a there is no morale hit. The screen fades to black, and you get like it is an ending screen. Mm-hmm. It is like it is like the title credits roll. It says Disco Elysium. There's wow. no, like, newspaper article that happens when you, like, quit from a nervous breakdown, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the game automatically starts over, like, in a new game. Damn. Yeah. So, don't so read that. Is the implication, then, that, like, you read that and you went on another bender? Like, you just couldn't help it? And so, the game is restarting because of that? I mean, that's one interpretation. I can't remember, like, if you do another type of game over, if the game restarts like that, uh, or if it know. goes to main menu. I think it goes to main menu. Wait, so that is a really interesting difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think that there is some, like, storytelling there. Um, maybe, oh my gosh, maybe I shouldn't have loaded. Maybe there was, like, more game after that. I just assumed that it was, like, a new game because it was my reptilian brain like talking mm-hmm. and it looked very similar to the beginning of the game. I'll have to try it next time I play. Maybe I know that there are some things that happen where you just wake up later. Maybe I would have maybe I just passed out, but the title screen made me think, "Oh, it's game over." I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea either. I think this exact same thing happened to me when I played the game the first time. Mm-hmm. And I just reloaded my game, but yeah. I haven't, you know, now hearing you say that, I thought, "Oh, I wonder if, yeah. if other stuff is happening." Anyway, so maybe save yeah. your game before doing so, that. So I saved my game before doing that. But anyway, um, uh, one thing, another thing in that ledger is that there is a little, um, there's a little holographic, like, sticker that has some, like, encoded information. And I asked him about it. And you can hold that holographic sticker in front of the lit lights of Kim's service vehicle Hmm. that have some property to, like, illuminate that uh, thing. And the holographic sticker also has, like, information about my record encoded into it with little, like, uh, indentions, right? And I find out that I've closed, I've been in the service for 18 years, that I have closed over 200 cases, which Kim was, like, very impressed by. He said, yeah, if you close 10 cases a year, you're in the top 1%. Hmm. Um, And that I've killed three people. And I say, oh my gosh, is that... Is that bad? And Kim actually tells me, actually, for your area, like for Jamrock, like your precinct, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are definitely some officers that like it's a ghoulish game to them to attempt to like kill to get a high body count, and like it's 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 the kind of um, the it's the kind of place where if you wanted to, you could probably get away with killing a lot of people. The fact that you've been working there for eighteen years and you've only killed three means you're probably one of the good ones, in his words. Hmm. Um, but anyway, so those are the things that I found out about me and, and as, as far as like the emotional stuff, but no, I think you're right. I think that there's a different way to play this where you are more that apologetic copper type where you are more like just really wallowing in your emotions where you're, you're getting more interaction on the X front, but no, you're right. The way you are interacting with it, you're, you're getting almost nothing. Yeah. And it's interesting the game keeps bringing it up. I mean, I guess one way of interpreting that is like you just can't get away from it, right? It's kind of baked into you. And even though your memory has been wiped, the, you know, the past is still there. Um, yeah, I mean, or um, there. I think that the game might also be saying this was not merely an alcohol-induced memory loss. This was a mental breakdown, specifically the culmination of this breakup, even if the breakup happened a long time ago like it's finally hit you and that is what has caused this yeah the other thing about it too is that um you know all the speed i was on has finally worn off Mm -hmm. (laughs) did you get this as well yeah when i woke up i've opted in my electro my electrochemistry has told me you know what your problem is you just don't have enough speed in your system yeah Mm -hmm. um and i said i'm not doing it i'm opting Mm. out i'm not doing any more speed Oh, wow. Did you Bad get any for you. thought cabinet stuff or what have you? Nope, did not. I've gotten not that much thought cabinet stuff, honestly. I've gotten maybe six or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've opted in, and now I have a, a little side quest to find speed. Mm. You can accomplish it. Yeah, I think I can. In this episode. So in the same way that, like... Uh, I, I said that I wanted us to have, like, at least one of us to, to engage in this part of the game. I, I was kind of interested, I guess, in the same way that you were interested in how does this game, like, interact with the choices around you being a racist. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I, the first the first time I, I played it, I, I didn't really do the the drug stuff, but I wanted to, like, I wanted to see on this playthrough how does this game treat this topic? How does it mm-hmm. treat addiction or, or, or chemical usage, etc.? Um I don't know how it's going to work. Yeah, it's uh, every time that it's come up so far in my game, it's been almost like as like a fun little jokey thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't, I don't know if being addicted to speed is fun necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so the basic stuff we got to do this day this is day two. Sure. Basic stuff is talk to the Hardy Boys. Yeah. Which luckily, and when I talked to Mr. Claire and I was like, hey, when when can I talk to the Hardy Boys? It was almost the game telling me, you know what? (laughs) They'll be there day two, basically. Long story short. And sure enough, uh, you walk down um, and you meet Kim in the lobby right after you wake up. And this area of the cafeteria of the lobby is now no longer cordoned off. And... uh, there's, there's, there, you know, a ton of like, uh, it looks like what is obvious to be the Hardy Boys, like a bunch of dock workers, 
are in there. And in front of there is the person that I borrowed, or I guess took, the gardening gloves from. The gardener is, like, mm-hmm. right in front of there. Yeah. And but they're, they're not a gardener. They're, they're not a gardener. Did you talk to the guy in the kitchen by any chance? I did. There's a language barrier <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't write he, his name down. I, uh, no, no. So here's the thing. Yeah. I, um, he said two words in a language I didn't understand and I had a logic failure and the logic failure was like, oh, that's obviously his name. <laughs> so then I proceeded to like address him by these two random words that he said. Yeah, my logic told me the opposite. It said, these are obviously just two words that you don't understand. This is not his name. Do not call him that. And so I immediately called him that. Oh, and, okay. And, uh, and then he kind of talked to me, and here's the thing. Here's the thing about you know race science. You know, It gives you different tools for being a racist. And so I was able to say, hey, you should talk uh, Revisholian. Mm. And he does not speak whether I was going to say English. He doesn't speak the language that we speak. Um, and Kim says, well, no one speaks Revisholian. Revishol is not a language. He's like, we speak Serezne. You literally <laughs> basically pulled the speak American. Exactly. It's 100%, mm-hmm. you know, speak American. And Kim steps out front to say, this is foolish. You are making a fool of yourself. This is an idiotic thing that reveals you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, another, just bringing this up only as another data point in the, Give me an option to be a racist. And then the game pretty explicitly stood out front and said, hey, you're being stupid. Yeah. Um, so, so. This, and, and here's the thing. It seems like you had to opt in to even be able to have that option. You had to do the advanced race theory. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. It didn't tell me. It didn't tell me one way or the other. Mm, mm-hmm. I can't but, remember if I had that option or not. Gotcha. I'll look in your mm-hmm. footage and I'll determine. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um. All right, so anybody else? I, I guess Gart, uh, now he's now that I am like up to date, it's going to be, I guess, another 20 real per day or something. I think it's 10. 10 real per day? Okay. Yeah, I didn't talk to Gart again. And I didn't talk to, there's a, a woman sitting in a wheelchair, did not talk to her either. She seems to have nothing to do with my uh, case. And I'm oh, not I talked speaking to her. her. No, not for me. She, uh, she quizzed me. I, I told her I was like I told her I was like, hey, I'm I'm in a rough shape, uh, you know, with memory. And she was like, oh well, do you know the the year? And I got the year right. And then she said, do you know where you are? And I said I'm in Revachol. And she's like, oh, that's good. And after I answered two questions, she gave me a funny pen. That's good. Like a like a funny pen with a little rubber uh, like uh, head of a of like a green creature, like some kind of cryptozoological animal. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and then I failed the next two questions, which are like, what form of government do we have? Oh, no. And my answer was like, um, a democracy, I guess, right? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> and, and she was like, unfortunately, no. Ever since uh, the revolution failed, we, we've basically just been like a uh, this vestigial market economy controlled by external forces. And I was like, but we've got police, though, right? Because I'm a cop. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and she said, oh dear, um, you need to talk. That's okay. So now that I've talked about it, that's how I got the get the reality lowdown quest. Got it. Okay. Cause she's like, you don't know how the world works. You need to talk to somebody about this. 
Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so we're talking to the Hardy Boys. And uh, as you're saying, this woman uh, is there. Her name is Elizabeth. And Mm -hmm. she basically says, hey, guess what? Um, you can you can talk to Titus Titus Hardy, the leader of the Hardy Boys. You can talk to him, but uh, just know that uh, you know I'm watching you basically, and I'm going to handle this conversation. And I was like, well, why would you be doing this? And she was like, I'm a lawyer, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I've been watching you. And uh, Claire actually referenced in my conversation that he sent like one of his workers to law school specifically for this purpose. Well, it worked out. So, mm-hmm. um, so yes, yeah, she's kind of monitoring this conversation and she kind of keeps it on the rails. Um, yes. You know, kind of makes it happen. But the rest of this episode for me uh, is basically pinging back and forth between talking to Titus Hardy and talking to another character who we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, and then trying to figure out like what the hell happened with this murder. We are we yes. are trying to figure out what is the context which created the murder. And I think that it's going to be a little bit of a different conversation because I know about the bullet. Yeah. So why don't you just give me? It, like, we don't have to get into like every line of conversation because it literally yeah. is an hour and a half of like talk. But why don't you give me just the overview of how this looked for you, and then I'll give you my overview, and then we can talk about some differences here. Yeah. So let me pull up my notes real quick. So just to, I, I don't want to belabor this point, but it was something during this segment of gameplay. I, I think it's important to talk about like mm-hmm. how this game works, right? Mm-hmm. Because like you said, this is this is a long conversation of like of of, of like a little um, web of conversation, I guess, between mm-hmm. these characters and kind of like you'll hit little bottlenecks that can only get uh, unclogged, I guess, or like, um, you know, little gates, I suppose is a better way to say it, that you can only get uh, further if you like talk to a different person in the web, right? Yep. And it made me think um, about a, uh, I feel comfortable talking about this even though we're an hour in because I know we're, we're going to have to summarize because this is, you know, an episode in and of itself if we're going to go line by line. Mm-hmm. It made me think about this video essay that Matt Lees did when he was doing Cool Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about, uh, I believe he's talking about like the last Zelda game or something, but it, he started the game with where... You know, a question that you have that it's interesting to ask if you're either designing a game or playing a game is where does this game reside? Like, where where is your attention in the game? And in his video essay, it was it was about like that the fact that like Zelda didn't have all of these UI elements on it that was like um, pulling your attention in many different ways. So it like afforded a particular type of experience because of that choice. Mm-hmm. Compared to like a lot of other, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn and and like other big games that have these like floating UI elements on the screen. Do you think that this game resides in a different place compared to the games we've played before or not? Based on... Based on the way that you progress the game and the way that conversation works in the game no okay um i i mean if only because this kind of, this entire section that that you're talking about this kind of web of conversation really operates by having you uh talk to someone walk up mm-hmm. some stairs walk through a door walk through another door talk to someone 
walk mm-hmm. back through the door, walk back downstairs, talk to the, that other person, kind of back and forth. Yes. Um, to me, it doesn't feel all that different than like um, the repetitiveness of combat in something like a Baldur's Gate game in the sense of I know where this is going. There's a little bit of kind of, of uh, decision making to go in the middle, right, of like making sure I'm going for the right checks and things like that. But for whatever reason in this conversation, I didn't really have that many places I could do checks um, over the course of an hour and a half. It really was me just knowing or, you know, figuring out through the context of conversation which things to ask. And so mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about, you know, when you say, does it reside in a different place? I think, is it asking me to do, is it asking me to kind of work different motors? You yes. Know, right. That's like, the is question. It, is it, is it asking me to kind of work in a different way and not really, I don't think in the sense that I'm still navigating an isometric space, I'm still doing fairly repetitive tasks where I have a very robust toolbox of dealing with it. Um, I am getting, I think you know, a different quality of storytelling. I think that's true for, for sure. But I don't think that that's any different than some of the longer conversations in Planescape Torment. This this entire section felt the most Planescape Tormenty to me um, in that it's very similar to the end of that game where you're spending like 30 minutes just kind of talking and like figuring out the big plot plans. Um, so, so for me, no, I don't think so. If I'm thinking about like what I am bodily and kind of mentally doing... Um, although the quality of those things is radically different. Okay, so basically, you're saying this is a this is a difference in perhaps degree and like style of execution, but this is not an apples orange situation. They're yeah, not I, different. Th- these things are not functioning in a different way for you. I, I don't think so. In the sense of what they're asking me to do and how they're asking me to interact with the world. Um, yeah, it's not apples oranges. I don't think. Mm-hmm. But in the same way that I don't know if I necessarily, you know, maybe to, as a, a postscript preface to the answer I just gave. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I agree with the Matt Lee's argument either. Um, okay. You know, I don't know if I necessarily buy into that uh, heuristic. But it seems like you you do. It seems like you think that these are they, apples and oranges. It was, it was resonant for me. But I, the reason why I asked is because I actually don't have my mind made up on whether... I think that the way the game functions, I have a different feeling while I am playing this game than when I am playing Baldur's Gate. And I know mm-hmm. for a fact that that is going to be exacerbated uh, and that's going to be an even more extreme difference when we're playing Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, absolutely. I think the way, the, the just my entire mode of like the way I'm thinking and playing when I'm playing this game versus Baldur's Gate 3, they're just, they're they're very different effective experiences, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. But I no, I think you're right. And when, when we're talking about resides and like where the, where the attention works and like how mechanically you have to prime the pump to, to do the thing. Uh, you know, perhaps a bullet hell game is, uh, is, is, you know, perhaps you reside in there differently than, than these games, but no, you're, you're probably right. It, it is just a, a different of refinement and execution. That, that, that's something that I can agree with. Okay. I mean, even though just really, really briefly, the, even the Baldur's Gate three example, I think that's a really good comparison because I, cause I think you're right in that regard. And like, I, I, I don't think that any conversation I have in Baldur's Gate 3 is going to make or break the experience for me. There are conversations you can have in this game that will make or break the experience for you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, opting out of the capo types early has really kind of like fucked up the way that I wanted to play this game. Mm. You know what I mean? And that that kind of thing of just completely walling yourself off from something um, that that very rarely happens in a Baldur's Gate, you know, in, especially in Baldur's Gate three that we've played so far. And when it does, you are happen, you are given three opportunities to pull back, much in the same way exactly. as like your the the racist circumstance when the, with the first conversation you have with the lorry driver, right? Mm-hmm. You've, yeah. you've got, you you have opportunities to back out several times. Not so with a lot of other decisions you make in this game. Yeah, and red checks kind of work that way too, right? So, so yes. I think there's a different. You know, I wouldn't say it's a question of residing. For me, it's a question of weight, right? What has more weight in this world than it does in Baldur's Gate Two, for example? Um, the 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 way that you engage in conversation has all of the weight in this game. Obviously, yes. right? It's a game. It's RPG about talking. Um, whereas all of the weight in Baldur's Gate 2 is really like, what spells did you take at level five? <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I think that that's, that you can take that one step further and say the weight is all in the conversation, but I also think it's a very world, like this is a much more world centric game. Mm-hmm. And I think Baldur's Gate is a player centric game. Yeah, 100%. In, in terms of like your your build and what your character is kind of defines the experience where this is this is definitely more of a, this feels in, in our kind of RPG terms, more of a sandboxy game where it's like, no, the world is out there and you are going to have to find your little niche in the world, but the world is this huge immutable thing that, it, that is far larger than you. Mm-hmm. And you, and more, you know, often in that game, in Baldur's Gate, you're thinking about, you know, how are the ways that my barbarian is going to be able to interact with this encounter? As opposed to this game where, you know, I often, I mean, the way I play this game is I sit on my skill points until I need to use them. Mm-hmm. And then when it shows up in dialogue, you know, and it's like, oh, you need visual calculus, I think. Okay, is it worth spending a point of visual calculus to give myself another kind of bite at the apple, mm-hmm. um, you know, when it comes to this thing? Which you wouldn't sit on level ups in the D&D game, no. right? Uh, to figure out like, you know, what, uh, you know, martial weapon proficiencies you wanted to expend points on. So, um, you know, certainly I, I think people who are listening are like, yes, obviously there are very big differences between these things. But I, I think the reason you're bringing this up and I think the reason why this is important is that uh, th- this is in a lineage of the game. There's a reason why we're doing this in Mages and Murder Dads and, and trying to figure out kind of the qualia of that, right? Like, what are the pieces of this that are resonant and what are the pieces that are kind of new feeling? Um, I think we'll have better ways of addressing that, you know, as we play through the game. Yeah. So before we end the episode here, let me give you the lay of the land in terms of the way this conversation web works. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hardy Boys are, um, as we said, they have this role of kind of roughnecks and the people that get things done around here and the enforcers of Martinet. Mm-hmm. I can, through, so the lawyer will at times interject in this conversation if Titus gets too close to outright admitting something, right? Mm-hmm. There are other players in the room. Um, uh, I guess, do, so do you have the names on these? I know yes, one is. I, one, I, I wrote them all down. I've got, go. We've got Glenn. We got Shanky. We got Theo. We got Alan. We got Eugene. And we've got Fat Angus, which mm-hmm. again is another. I mean, what? For a game that is trying to be so complicated in so many other ways, the way that yeah. it treats fat characters is it's so. Here's the thing. It's just retrograde, Cameron, right? Here's the thing, Cameron. The way that this game feet treats fat characters 
is by its own logic the same way it treats racist characters. It indelibly marks the characteristic on the name of the character itself, which we've seen with like the racist lorry driver sure. or the, there's another character we meet is the crypto fascist. Mm-hmm. So it is, it, it, and I don't know, I'm trying to think of other characters that have like a big, strong, like adjective right in their name. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm drawing a blank right now. It's not Gart the arrogant cafeteria manager right yes yeah. gart right yeah yeah he, i mean gart could be arrogant cafeteria manager yes it, and then the you could say the and then you could say okay we're, we're just appending like descriptive adjectives to everybody's names but it doesn't work that way they have made yeah, a choice right. with fat angus yeah you're right hmm yeah hmm. in the way that they treat angus is fucked up too but yeah a- anyway sorry but yeah so that, that yes. those are all the players and as you're saying that as you talk to the lawyer and as you talk to titus these people kind of chip in and uh, they are not under tight control by Titus. And so you're able to kind of lever what they're saying against him and to kind of confer with Kim a little bit. So it, it adds like a whole other layer of, of how you, you, you realize about halfway through this conversation that you are not conversing with Titus. You are conversing with the Hardy boys and that you can provoke all of these people kind of against one another. Yes. So... There's a lot going on here. So the, I would say like a big fulcrum for me, I think there were two big things that like determined my path through this. One was the fact that I had spoken to two, both Joyce and Claire about mm-hmm. it. So I think that there is a way that you could play this game where you didn't talk to those two people and day two happened and you talked to Titus because Kim told me, hey, before we we started the conversation, Kim told me, hey, we don't have to talk to them now. We could wait. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the game's way of telling you this conversation is going to go a very different way if you, quote unquote, do your homework or, or like gather more information than if you just jump right in without talking to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also, that like probably pruned a lot of the conversation tree for me. And the second thing was I noticed early on through a composure check or one of my like physical abilities that I basically determined that Fat Ankus was the weak link in the room, that mm. he would be, quote unquote, the first one to crack. Did you come to, to come to this conclusion? I mean, eventually, but through conversation, not yeah. through... Uh, it was weird. I I like I walked into the room and I like I like scanned the room and came to that almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, so well, so I, I mean, maybe because the basic bones of this conversation goes yeah. the same way for both of us. So where were you able to use kind of your physical and motoric abilities to like angle this? So the the those abilities were most key. And like sensing like how dangerous and how serious and what the what the various like um, how would I say it what the various positions either of authority or of uh, like level of involvement the the dock workers in the room had hmm. Th- there was one uh, person in particular and let me look at the name it was uh, Theo. Mm-hmm. And I had, there was like one physical instrument, I think, popped in. And physical instrument is like, Theo is dangerous. 
Yeah, he's the older man, right? Yeah, I it, think he, so. It, throughout the conversation, it kept seeming like he was going to pull a gun. Yes, no, exactly. And that was the, like, early on, I, w- I was like, this person is on the verge of violence. Gotcha. Um, so I think that that kind of colored the conversation. But big picture, we find out that, uh, I'm looking at the time here, I just want to make sure we have yeah. the, the bare bones of it. Big Big picture, we have a circumstance where the the very first person that I met in the game, Klausia, is uh, the the woman that Lely, the military contractor, uh, sexually, you know, is accused of sexually harassing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Titus explicitly says that she was raped. Yes, yes. Um, so the way that the conversation works is I think that you can issue, you can like try to make a decision with Titus or you can like leave the conversation without making a decision and you can go talk to Klausia and, um, and, uh, and like basically get her side of it and, and like talk to her. Um, but during, so did you get a tape? Yeah. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit and then I'll, I'll kind of go through this too. The, so the first conversation with Titus that I had at the end of that conversation, he was like, uh, yeah, we did it. He was like, we Mm -hmm. committed this murder. We killed this guy. And then I was like, so you did it? And he says, no, 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 no. We did it. And then the lawyer, Elizabeth, uh, she kind of pipes up and says, okay, you, you've heard it. They've admitted it. They are murderers. There's seven of them. Are you going to arrest all seven of them? And so really kind of positions it as like, how much power do you think you have? And so I was like, "Ah, you know, that's interesting. But like, why did you do it? And so then he's like, it's because of this rape. I can go talk to Klausia. Um, I talked to Klausia and she says, no, that that's not what happened. You know, she says that we... Uh, had a, uh, a complicated relationship. They did a lot of drugs. They did a lot of drinking. Now, is that what she says at the very beginning? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Did you succeed on any checks with that? Yeah. I mean, I was able, I got a lot of empathy conversation from her, mm. uh, like my empathy skill passively that kind of guided me through the conversation, what things to say. I feel like it actually matters in this conversation what order you kind of broach these questions. Um, I think that when I first went to Klausia, she was like, yes, it did happen. Uh, if that's what, if that basically, if that's what they said, then that's what happened. No, you know, she did not. Mm-hmm. She from, from jump told me that is not okay. what, what occurred. Okay. Um, yeah. I had to, I had to do some back and forth on that, but also the, the tenor, I dropped quickly. Yeah. There's a bullet in this guy's head. Mm. Very, I dropped it very early, and they got like they got very um, antsy and like leery around it. Gotcha. Titus mm-hmm. did, and the Hardy yeah. Boys, mm-hmm. um, and that also made the lawyer nervous. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, because that's kind of the end of this whole thing, right? So yes. So I so I talked to Klausia, and she's like, "That's not what happened." And I went back and talked to Titus, and I was like, "Klausia is not backing your story. If she's not backing your story, then your entire logic for why you did this murder doesn't make sense. And I don't believe you really did it. You know, I'm able to say, like, if this is if the reason you told me that you did this murder didn't actually occur, then I don't think that you did the murder. Right. I feel like you're making this up. And he Mm -hmm. says, "Okay, well, how about this? Here's a tape. He gives me a tape that's called the Door Gunner Mega Mix or something. 
and I have to go to the pawn shop. I have to buy a tape recorder or a tape yes. player. Um, because the one in our uh, <laughs> hotel... I, I love the fact that they like they put this broken one in our hotel room seemingly for the purpose of just taunting us the fact that we could have it like it just makes us regret our fictional actions even more it's like oh my god this would have been so nice to, to have the the tape player and and we wrecked it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah i've got a lot of money um i've got like 40 <laughs> i've got like 40 real uh i've been collecting all my litter and turning it in so i have i have a lot of money so i, I go and buy it and i was able to even say he was like it's 12 real and I was like, well, I'm going to use it to listen to sounds and not music. So how about that? And he's like, that's awesome. He's like, I don't, I don't really like music. I like, he basically calls, uh, tells me to enjoy my music concrete. Um, and uh, when, when I interacted with the pawn shop owner, um, I could, I got a strong drug vibe from him. Yes. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. My electrochemistry was like, so I, I haven't asked him for drugs yet because I, I want to just do that at a later time, but I'm pretty sure he's my lead. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so I got get the, the you I get the tape player, got the tape player, listen to it. And basically in the tape it is a one side of a radio call that Laylee is making to one of the other, um, uh, uh, militia not militia but uh private military contractors. yeah yeah pmc um mm-hmm. people and he basically says like look i'm getting fed up with it you know i'm gonna uh you know rape this girl and i'm gonna murder all of these people uh cohoy style which basically has the vibe was like a the, reference to a war crime basically but yeah i mean it's basically their version of vietnam uh mm-hmm. you know a massive military conflict and which was um you know strongly related to a lot of war crimes and so mm-hmm. you know he basically is, he's like talking like a character from platoon mm-hmm. um and so you know so then i go to Klausia and i was like Klausia, uh it does sound like this is what he's saying and she was like no he just said that shit all the time like he was full of machismo um you know and she actually says uh doing it you know whatever style whatever the name of the the country style she was like, it was like his, um, and I was like, oh yeah, persona. And she says, no, 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 like a running joke. Uh, you mm. know, it was his like just thing that he said all the time. Because he's he'd said it even in reference to like drinking beers, right? Yeah, it seems that way. It seems like he would mm-hmm. say it constantly. And so the you know what is meant to be damning evidence of like obviously this person did it the person who was the ostensible victim is through a lot of dialogue you know Clausius saying mm-hmm. no that's not really what happened and then you have this conversation where you know i had this conversation where i was like well so you're telling me you weren't raped and she's like oh i mostly wasn't and i'm like well look i need clarity here one way or the other and she's like well for the purposes of this investigation no um, and so the game is trying to do this kind of maneuver where, um, you know, in real life and in, in real kind of, uh, you know, you know, people who are doing drugs and who are, uh, drunk all the time, the questions of like consent and what, what is happening and who wants what to happen are, are very confused and blurry. And, you know, she is making choices about how to interpret those, um, actions now. I don't know if that's exactly how I would have approached thinking about this in the game. I don't know if this is the way that I would write this in the game. I probably wouldn't write something like this in a game at all. Mm. But this is, uh, I think that's the vibe that it's going for, is that the the general vibe that's being going for here is that real life is extremely messy. 
and these characters have quote unquote real lives and in a world of real life um these things can't be parsed out so well this has been this is telegraphed in the first 5 minutes of the game when a uh when a child uh says a homophobic slur directly at you and then you look at that child and you realize that that child's high on drugs like exactly the, it's the entire tone of the game is just like right there yeah it's it's the flip side into another kind of scenario right of like look look man you can't handle a 12 year old on amphetamines Mm -hmm. Um, and it's Mm -hmm. like look man you can't handle the reality of relationships and like drug use Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there, there's something tied in here too, uh, that Klausia is apparently an expert in Aranyi's literature. Um, and we get a sense that that's this kind of melancholic, um, you know, kind of bleak look at reality literature in mm, several very times, like Russian, exactly. uh, yeah. Yeah. And several times in this conversation, I can say, is this when she's saying something particularly like bleak or melancholic or kind of overly poetic, I can be like, is this Arani's literature? <laughs> and she's like, yes, this is exactly mm-hmm. Arani's literature. So so there's a way in which this is kind of playing into literary stereotypes around situations like this, too. Um so, you know, I think there's a lot of complex ideological positions on the part of the developer um going on in this conversation but long story short Claudio says no this didn't happen um and i didn't have to go back and talk to titus and the hardy boys did you get into a was there ever a heated moment where you could choose to look at angus or theo how that initial or how that eventually works out for me i'm looking at my notes here mm-hmm. um when I go back and talk to Titus after talking to Colossia this time, right, when she kind of mm-hmm. pulls the 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 um, uh, tape apart, you know, I mean, not literally, but metaphorically. It. Yeah. And she's like, look, this is all this is the way you should be reading this. You know, she kind of instructs me in the way that I should interpret it. Which it seems like this tape as a gameplay mechanic is kind of basically an equalizer in the conversation. It gets, depending on what you knew going into it, depending on what, um, depending on what, uh, methods you used or what your stats were, the, the, it seems like the cassette basically gets everybody on the same page. Exactly. This. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's providing some kind of critical info. Um, I kind of picture it as a, like, yeah, your branch, you branch out and then you come back together into a bottleneck of that tape and then you can branch out again. It feels like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, what happens here is I go back to Titus and he's like, oh my God. Cause basically he, he thought the tape would be like another opportunity to get Klausia on board, right? Just to like mm-hmm. have her say, yes, you know, uh, this happened to me and that makes the whole story work, right? And the fact that she chose not to do that, it makes everyone kind of a little bit antsy. And I get a rhetoric, like uh, medium success, I think, that shows up um, that uh, makes me realize, okay, this is an opportunity to start playing the Hardy Boys off of one another, and Angus is just one of the first ones to talk. And so Angus lets it slip that uh, he was already dead or something when he carried him. So, like, it's it's an unforced error, basically, <laughs> that, that causes uh, the first mm-hmm. initial slip. And after the first initial slip happens, I can kind of follow it down the road and kind of get the story, which we can, you know, from what we know already, can kind of infer. He's already dead. They take him and they hang him. Um, but then the big question is... 
why was he already dead? But it seems like you got there a different way. I mean, it's actually very similar. I just wanted to talk about the fact that uh, I had to reload. Oh. Because Theo killed me. Oh. There's a moment where basically you can be confrontational with Theo, the guy who's threatening everybody. Mm-hmm. And, or you can turn to the person you've identified as the quote-unquote um, weak link. Oh, I did have, so I had a moment where Theo was like looking at me and I looked to Kim and Kim Kim had his hand on his gun. And so I guess Mm -hmm. I just maneuvered that differently to to kind of make that situation not happen. But I guess I got up right up to the kind of precipice of that occurring. Yes. Um, It happened. And it's it's the exact same thing as reading the note. It does not matter what your uh, like health is. Hmm. Um, But in any case... It's actually the same thing. Once you get that uh, thing, you can conjole. Like, I think that it basically deflates their their story sufficiently, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the fact that the the that the proposed victim is is refuting their story and is no longer cooperative. Um, that plus the uh, the the bullet in the head for me, and they're and they're not able to like offer an adequate explanation. That kind of uh, cracks it at that point. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. so like, yeah, where, so what's your, after you like finish this conversation, where is your attention directed? Like, what is the next obvious step? Well, so after I had this conversation with Titus, I, I do know that he was shot to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I got into spirit decor, uh, you know, um, like, like the check uh, mm-hmm. that happened. And it's a, it was a, a snapshot of the coroner operating on the body. Or, or, you know, doing an investigation on the body and looking deep in the mouth and being like, well, I can't believe or or, or I think he says um, or the coroner. I don't know if it's a he. The coroner says, well, I can't blame him for missing that. Mm. And you come. So you you figure it out in retrospect, basically. Well, that's the weird thing is I don't think that. I, um, yeah, I mean, yes, yes. Essentially, <laughs> I get all the information just way after the fact. Mm-hmm. Through a check. Um, mm-hmm. But then I had to go talk to Klausia again to figure out exactly what happened. Okay. Did you do this? And yes, or I think I'm just before that. I thought that uh, I thought that I'd kind of like cracked the the case at least in terms of that. But I haven't gone back to talk to Klausia about after Titus. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to save that for next time? Yeah, we could save that for next time. I think that's when, this is when you can, if you want, attempt to reconstruct the murder. And I didn't get to that point. Yeah, well, yeah, you talk to Klausia first, and then you can do, attempt to, to uh, reconstruct the murder. And mm-hmm. um, I made some interesting choices here. Oh, okay. Some kind of game-altering choices in big ways, oh. uh, which are cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we'll we'll be back, uh, you know, with the next episode. Some uh, no, in two weeks <laughs> is when the next episode will come out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can go to Patreon.com/slash Range Touch to learn um, all, all about uh, what we're up to. You can support the show by backing us there. You can check out other shows that Range Touch puts out, such as Too Much Future, which is basically Mages and Murder Dads, but for the Fallout games. Uh, game Studies Study Buddies, uh, where Michael and I read books of game studies and then talk about them and kind of uh, make them uh, explainable and explicable and fun for a wider audience than just academics. And then uh, Just King Things, where Michael and I are reading the works of Stephen King in publication order. 
uh, which is very exciting. It's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of, of uh, works there. So, um, yeah, you can check that out. Uh, uh, again, patreon.com. If you have not hit the subscribe button for Range Touch, go ahead and do that. Um, and if you haven't uh, hit the like button for this particular episode, please do that. Those things help us out. They help us sequence up in the algorithm. If you're watching this on YouTube and you'd rather hear it in a podcast, there's a link to do that down below this. Um, very easy to do. So um, I think that's it. We'll be back in two weeks talking about uh, the murder and uh, talking to Klausia and probably some side quests, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think episode four, we're going to be seeing a, l- a little bit of side quest action. Goodbye. Ciao. Oh!